Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. We're so glad you can join us. We are a little slow at Brussels Sprouts in getting to this issue, but there has been a flurry of activity in the former Soviet space uh, in what Russia would call its near abroad that I think raises a lot of questions about what's happening and what it means for Russian influence in the region. So we first had the fraudulent elections in Belarus in August that triggered what's proven to be a really remarkable protest movement, even despite regime violence against the protesters. Uh, there's the conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh, where Russia seemed uh, a bit reluctant to get involved despite its longstanding security relationship with Armenia. We had protests in Kyrgyzstan in October in the aftermath of fraudulent parliamentary elections there, which ultimately led the president to resign. And then most recently, there were the elections in Moldova where the pro-candidate uh, Maya Sandu defeated the more Russian-linked incumbent Igor Dodin in November. So again, a whole host of churn, I think, in the former Soviet space that raises at least a lot of questions for me. So we at Brussels Sprouts have two fantastic guests with us today who are going to help us make sense of what's happening. Um, I'm happy to have Olya Oliker here with us, as well as Paul Stronsky. And just a quick bio on each of them. Um, Olya is the Crisis Group's Program Director for Europe and Central Asia, and Paul Stronsky's at Carnegie's Russia and Eurasia Program, uh, and he has served as the Director for Russia and Central Asia on the National Security Council and a Russia analyst for the U.S. State Department and a career foreign service officer. So Olya and uh, Paul, welcome. It's great to have you both. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so it's always, the, the first question I feel like is always the hardest, but I think kind of taking that backdrop that I just laid out, these different events in Belarus and Armenia, Azerbaijan, uh, in Kyrgyzstan, in Moldova, I think there are some analysts who have looked at these events and concluded or who have or, or have argued that Russia's influence in the region is waning um, and it, that these events have made the Kremlin look indecisive and challenged. And so when you step back, and we can delve into some of these specific um, instances in detail, but first, when you just step back and look at what's happening in the former Soviet space, what does that tell you? Um, what, how are you interpreting what's going on and what that means for Russia's influence in the region? And Olya, maybe we can start with you. Sure. So I think when we talk about influence waning or waxing, you want to ask compared to when and compared to who else. Um, and what we are seeing is shifts in these countries on Russia's periphery, uh, some in ways that end up benefiting Russia, some in ways that do not. Uh, so I think in Belarus, Russia is in a bit of a quandary, um, may not be madly in love with Lukashenko, but certainly doesn't want to see him toppled by protests, which creates uh, a really inconvenient situation. In Moldova, you know, I think Russia's paid more attention to Moldova than just about anybody else, um, uh, certainly, but uh, it's always a much more complicated, um, much more complicated situation than you think. Uh, and the ostensibly pro-Western candidate, Maya Sandu, actually ran on a campaign that said this isn't about pro-Western or pro-Russia, this is about corruption and economics. And she had a little help from one Russian-backed candidate against another Russian-backed candidate that put her in a position to win, which, you know, none of this is directly about Russia or any kind of competition with the West. And all of it is really about Moldova. 
Nagorno-Karabakh is definitely all about Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, and Russia has actually, I think, come out of it pretty well. It is the peacemaker to the extent we're getting anywhere closer to peace than we were before, and at least the guns have stopped uh, firing. Russia is the broker. There is no other broker. The OSCE uh, Minsk group that has been responsible for trying to resolve this conflict was not there for all intents and purposes. Kyrgyzstan, I'm going to let Paul take Kyrgyzstan. Um, I think he, he knows a lot more, but you know, I, I will just say that some years ago there was unrest in Kyrgyzstan and a request for Russia to come in and Russia refused to come in. Uh, this time, I don't believe anybody asked. On the other hand, it didn't get to that kind of violence either, but I'll, I'll let Paul take that one. <laughs> no, yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I agree uh, wholeheartedly with, uh, with Olya. I mean, I think we are seeing a, uh, a big shift uh, that's going on in the region. And this is not the same region that it was 30 years ago. Um, we've seen an entire generation of, of people grow up, an entire generation of political and governing elites um, move, move up through the system. We're seeing some of the older elites, you know, start to, to pass on um, uh, uh, power uh, to others. And I think if you look at Kyrgyzstan, uh, what you're seeing is, is you see a, a society that has always been a little bit more robust uh, but you're also seeing a society um, that really has been poorly governed. Uh, it has a history of being poorly governed. Um, and I think you can't you know, remove some of what we're seeing in the former Soviet space from uh, the fact that we have a global pandemic going on. Uh, in Kyrgyzstan, you have a society um, that you know, the government could not respond uh, to the pandemic and you had uh, civil society volunteer organizations um, all across the country really being the first responders. Um, as this this crisis, uh, you know, continued to grow and grow and grow, and and you know, very few people in in Kyrgyzstan seem to be untouched uh, by COVID, um, and so. You, you sort of saw a lot of anger um, at their government, not so much at Russia, um, but at their own governance and sort of the corruption and the lack of accountability. And so when you had a, a bad uh, election, you got people out onto the street. And I think if you look at, at, at Belarus, there's a little bit of that, uh, a lot of that actually uh, going on there too. So, um, you know, we, we very often, you know, see uh, the world as, or see this region as a place where Russia has a lot of a lot of influence, but Russia is also reacting to how things are shifting uh, on the ground and reacting to societies uh, that are uh, that are changing and changing quickly. Well, thank you, thank you for that. And uh, Andre, I don't know if you want to make a you want to do a follow up. Well, that was your question. I don't want to jump on your question. I could do uh, just one more quick follow up because like while we're on the topic of Russian influence in the region in particular, one question is whether or not you think that Russia has changed its calculus or changed the way that it looks at its former Soviet space. You know, Dmitry Trenin has written the article about Moscow's new rules. Um, others have argued, well, maybe with Russia's military modernization that the former Soviet Union, some of these countries are no longer as critical as they were in the past. You know, it used to be that Russia saw these states as a critical buffer zone, but with some of the military changes, maybe that's not as important. Others have, have argued that as Russia is more intent on taking on the United States and wanting to compete with the United States, well, then it, it, it's, it feels that it can't just sit in its own backyard, that it has to go out and compete with the United States where the United States is. 
And so if from, from the Kremlin, do you think it's calculus about the region has changed? And because if it has, I think that would be pretty remarkable because when you think about kind of the pillars of Russian foreign policy, having influence in the former Soviet space has always been very kind of top of list. And I think for the, from the Kremlin's perspective, there was a calculus that if you wanted to be a global power, well, then first you had to be a regional power. And I wonder if that's shifting, if they're kind of skipping over that traditionally near abroad uh, and, and, and looking past it in a way that it hasn't historically. I mean, I will start and just say, I'm not, I don't think the Russians are quite ready to write off the neighborhood yet. I think their attitudes are shifting in terms of just what an okay situation may look like. They have learned lessons from Ukraine. Um, they, they can live with a certain amount of democracy. They can live with, you know, I think the Armenia example is really interesting. You hear a lot of people saying that they always hated Pashinyan and, you know, they, they set all this up somehow magically uh, to, get, to get rid of Pashinyan. I don't, think, I, I don't think that's what's going on. I think what they've realized is it's okay if Maya Sandu wins the election as long as she has a decent relationship with Russia. I mean, they, they've, they've congratulated her. They haven't congratulated uh, Joe Biden yet. Uh, they can live with Pashinyan, but they're not gonna save him if he gets into trouble at home, right? The, and if, you know, they can live with Lukashenko going, but not as a result of public street protests, right? This is the thing that the transition has to look like a transition they're comfortable with. But I think they still want the influence and I'm pretty sure they still want the buffer zones. Now, Central Asia is a little bit different in part because of the Chinese, the relationship with China and the increasing Chinese role. They're not competing with the United States or they don't think that's who they're competing with there. But um, I don't know, again, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, defer to Paul and Kyrgyzstan. No, I would, I would agree. Um, uh, I think if, if you look at, um, you know, Georgia and then you look at Ukraine, uh, in both cases, Russian actions really turned the population uh, of those countries against, uh, uh, against Russia. Um, and I think by the time you had the Velvet Revolution in Armenia, um, and then by the time you had the unrest in Kyrgyzstan this year, um, the Russians realized and the Kremlin realized that, um, you know, they have a lot of clout in some of these, these countries, um, and it doesn't necessarily matter who, uh, you know, might be in charge, um, as long as they play it right and play a longer game. Um, you know, Armenia doesn't have a whole lot of other options, doesn't have a whole lot of other places to go. Uh, and Kyrgyzstan, uh, unless it wants to be swallowed up by the Chinese, um, is going to have to have uh, decent relations uh, with the United States. Well, I'm sorry, with, with Russia. Um, the other component uh, of this, um, so when I traveled to the region five years ago, six years ago, I constantly heard about all the nefarious things the United States was doing, um, both you know, in Central Asia and the Caucasus. Um, and over the last few years, you hear less and less of that. And I think there is a perception in Russia that, that um, the United States, particularly in, in, in Central Asia, but I also think more recently um, in the Caucasus, uh, has not been as influential and has not been pushing um, as as strong a, a um, uh, 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 policies uh, in the region. So I think you know that there, there's a lot less um, you know concern on the Russians um, uh, aspect um, that they don't need to go toe to toe with the United States. Um, I think in some ways they are actually now recognizing that you know, with, with the U.S. not being as present, they might actually have to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with, the, with the Turks uh, or the Israelis or the Chinese um, 
or the Scandinavians, um, you know, depending on what country uh, you're looking at. Um, and so I think, you know, things are, th things are shifting, but I think in many of these places, Belarus too, I mean, they recognize, you know, there are limited options for some of these, these countries, particularly, um, you know, if their human rights uh, situations are, are, as, are as, as difficult as, as bad as, as, as many of them are. Well, let's talk about that point about uh, Turkey and going toe to toe. I, I, I it's fascinating watching the, the Turks and the Russians uh, play footsie, if you will, um, in various places. They they sometimes are on the same side. Sometimes they're opposing one another. Sometimes it looks like the Turks are doing the Russians' bidding. Um, you know, I mean, it's just it's just fascinating. And so, uh, particularly with Nagorno Karabakh, watching the Turks. Um, uh, you know, working with Azerbaijan and uh, the, uh, you know, it, it seemed to me that the Russians were kind of letting the letting Turkey and Azerbaijan do their thing, uh, just to to uh, you know just to put a couple of shots across the bow of Armenia. I mean, I'm no expert, but but it was it's interesting. It's interesting on a military point of view too. By the way, there's going to be a couple of events coming up where we're going to look at the military implications for what happened on the battlefield there. But but back to Turkey and to Russia, um, could you all talk about that a little bit and particularly how it worked in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh? So I have what may be a bit of a minority take on this. Um, I Turkey supported Azerbaijan, absolutely, had been for a while, and that was decisive. What's interesting is that for many, many years, Russia had been selling weapons to both Armenia and Azerbaijan at a tremendous discount to Armenia, full price for Azerbaijan, but you know, right. one can pay, one of them can't. And in that way, keeping both of them uncertain that they could win a military victory, right? It, it kept the balance. Azerbaijan started buying stuff from Turkey and Israel, and it also started getting training from Turkey. And it decided at some point that it could risk a conflict. Now, the Armenians also, for some reason, decided they could risk a conflict, though I think they were a little less certain, but there was just such a tremendous um, war drum pounding in both countries that they all convinced themselves that they could win. And, you know, you had this escalation uh, back in 2016 where the Russians actually got them to both to back off. Basically, they got the Azerbaijanis to back off. They told the Azerbaijanis, look, you can get a deal at the negotiating table, no need to lose blood over this. Uh, but the Armenians walked away from it saying, hey, they backed off. They must have realized they couldn't win. We would have won. Hey, rah, rah, us. Um, no deal at the negotiating table. Azerbaijan comes back. You know, you have this other war, right? Um, the Armenian, you know, the Armenians also, we're going to be fine, right? All the way through until the very end, the Armenian government is telling its people, we're doing great, really. Tide's about to turn. So what, where is Turkey's role? Turkey critical in supporting Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan couldn't have done this victory that, you know, this is what they got without them. What's Russia's role? So Russia has an alliance commitment to Armenia, but what they said very early in this process is they don't have an alliance commitment to Nagorno-Karabakh and never did. Uh, you know, this starts to threaten Armenia's sovereignty over Armenia, absolutely, but they have been a mediator in the conflict over Nagorno-Karabakh all of this time, and there, they're neutral. And in the end, they actually are able to mediate. Turkey, Turkey's gonna to continue to support Azerbaijan. Turkey has what looks like um, a role in some kind of peacekeeping monitoring center that's gonna be based in Azerbaijan. It's not decisive, right? This isn't kind of the, this notion of this is Turkey coming into the Caucasus big time. I don't think so. Now I think 
what's interesting is if you do get a lifting of the block blockade on Armenia, if you do get real integration of Armenia into an economy that includes Turkey and Azerbaijan, then Turkey might actually start having a real influence in the region. Right now, as a result of this conflict, I think everybody's going to want to buy Turkish drones. Um, you know, kind of going to yep. that military story, yeah. that kind of the, the impact you can have with drones, definitely very interesting. But I don't know that this changes the balance quite yet. And, and you know, I would agree in, in many ways. I mean, I think uh, Turkey, if you, if you look at, at both Turkey's uh, involvement in, in, in uh, the Caucasus, but also Turkey's broader historic involvement throughout the former Soviet space in Central Asia, you know, they certainly have had long um, standing uh, interests in Crimea um, as well. Um, they haven't always been able to translate that into actual um, real policy results or real, um, real influence. I think the one place where they've been able to do that um, is militarily um, and through their cultural ties uh, with Azerbaijan, um, as Olya said. And I do think um, both what made this war different from the 2016 uh, war was uh, was the drones, uh, which was able to um, uh, degradate sort of um, uh, Armenian air defenses. Um, uh, and you know, the Armenians sort of expected a war like they were going to have, you know, 20 years ago and, and didn't sort of see how, how uh, these drones with Turkish support, with Turkish training, and probably with Turkish intel um, was able to sort of turn the tide. But I would also say it was Turkish diplomatic backing. Um, in previous instances where there had, had been uh, violence between the two sides, um, Turkey uh, very often would uh, indicate that it would it wanted this to be solved uh, peacefully uh, and didn't give a full throttled diplomatic backing um, uh, for war. That kind of changed uh, in this circumstance, um, and I think that put Russia in, into um, you know this is maybe where where uh, Olya and I have a, have a little bit of a, a, a difference. I think that put Russia into a, a very difficult uh, situation. In the end, they were able to broker, but it took them six weeks. Uh, in previous instances, they were able to bring the sides together and get them to knock it off um, uh, within four days in 2016. Uh, by my um, you know, recollections, I think it took two weeks uh, before Putin could get uh, President Aliyev uh, on the phone um, uh, this time. Uh, and so I think it only became you know, clear when Armenia was about to lose and when um, Azerbaijan accidentally shot down a Russian helicopter was uh, the uh, uh, Russians able to really you know, use their leverage uh, to get the Azerbaijanis uh, to back down. I guess also Moscow must have been uh, probably had a bit of a leash on the Turks too. It's, you know, they were letting the, the Turks kind of have a, a fuller hand with Azerbaijan and all that they were doing even before the war. And then as things got uh, a bit heated in terms of Armenia, the, the shooting had started. It was obvious the Azerbaijan's, uh, Azerbaijanis were doing well. Um, uh, at some point, the Russians pulled back on that leash on the Turks, I would think, uh, and told the Turks, okay, enough, we're going in there. And the Turks said, well, we want to be peacekeepers too. Uh, and the Russians said, no, you're not. And the most that they could get was that, that center you talked about. So it, it seemed, I mean, again, I'm not an expert here, but it seemed that the Russians were kind of letting the, the Turks go and, and, and uh, you know, but would pull back on that Turkish throttle when it was time for the Turks to stand down and let the Russians go in and get what they needed done on the ground. Is that a, is that a re correct reading? I mean, I don't know. I don't know that they have a Turkish throttle. I think the Turks, Turks are going to Turk. They're going to do what they're going to do. Um, Russians are going to Russian. Uh, I think that the problem, 
Turkey wasn't going to go in there in a mediation role because there was no way the Armenians were going to accept it. They, you know, the Armenians were convinced they were fighting the Turks, yeah. right? The Armenians were not big believers in Azerbaijani agency. They thought they were at war with Turkey and that there was going to be another front opened up with Turkey at any moment and there was going to be a genocide again. Um, and I don't think the Turks were planning that at all. I think the Turks were supporting Azerbaijan. Um, and from a Russian perspective, I think the problem, you know, kind of the problem was in 2016, they could tell the Azerbaijanis, you can get a deal at the negotiating table. It's been four years, no deal, right? Things just get, got more and more frozen. And the Azerbaijani hope that Pashinyan was going to actually negotiate, gone, right? And now they're thrilled because they've got everything they could have dreamed of uh, from the, at the negotiating table. But the Turks, you know, I think just it's understanding the Turkish role was really just backing Azerbaijan. And that's not enough to get you a seat at the table or your peacekeepers in Karabakh. It gets you exactly as far as the Azerbaijanis are going to let you specifically in. Yeah. And then, then you've got the Russians and that's a limit. Yeah, that, I, to, to, go, to follow that, I think if you look at the agreement that was signed, I mean, the, the Turks like to, 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 to spin that, that, that they actually have a formal role in that agreement, but it is a, it's an agreement between Azerbaijan, uh, Armenia, and uh, Russia, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a peace deal, but it's basically just a, a, a very, very um, scant sketch of, of how, to, how to end, end the fighting. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, Azerbaijan, uh, with Turkey uh, have sort of then declared that that you know there would be the, this peacekeeping force that would be based in Azerbaijan, but it's not part of any any sort of formal deal that everybody else has signed signed on to. So I think it is um, you know it's it's how they spin spin it. Um, uh, the other thing too that I think is interesting um, you know to note is is I think you know Azerbaijan's success in this war even surprised Azerbaijan. I mean I think they were not expecting this to to be a very um, uh, you know lengthy six week war. I think they were expecting it to go sort of the, the ways that they had gone um, in the past. Um, uh, and you know the Aliyev government had been facing a lot of problems at home, a lot of growing dis, you know discontent um, uh, at home. This sort of swept everything uh, uh, away. Um, uh, and I think, you know, once they started to retake territory and retake territory swiftly, you know, this, this kind of took a life of, it, uh, of its own. Um, uh, so I think it, it surprised the Azerbaijanis, surprised the Russians, uh, and certainly uh, surprised uh, uh, the Armenians. So I'm still sticking on this issue of kind of trying to gauge Russian influence in the region. And I think the stories that you both painted, though, especially in Nagorno-Karabakh, downplays uh, relative to some interpretations uh, Turkey's role in the final outcome and that it really was kind of a, a net win for Moscow. They're the ones with the peacekeeping presence now in the region. But there's also the other um, influence, outside influence, Olya, that I think you referred to earlier, which is China. Um, and so I think when, if, again, if you were sitting in the Kremlin and you've seen now a, a more activist Turkey uh, in the Caucasus, and certainly China in Central Europe, but also in Ukraine and Belarus, kind of using its economic influence investments in those countries. Do you think that Russia is kind of accepting the limits or the inevitability of China's slow increase in economic influence in its region and it's willing to accept that in a different way 
um, than it is US or European Union influence in the region. I guess. So it's a, a long way of saying, do you think Russia looks at Turkey and China differently in its region, that it's more accepting of their presence, that they see those two countries as interlocutors or partners that they can work with and navigate differences? Is it a different calculus or um, it, you know, are, do, do you think that makes the Kremlin nervous in any way? Or are they threatened? So I think with China, Moscow tends to see China as potentially a long-term danger and challenge, but in the near term, a very, very helpful partner and will deal with the long-term when we get to the long-term. With Turkey, I think they are perfectly happy to cut deals where the deals can be cut and they feel that they have the upper hand. They don't think Turkey in the long-term is a real threat. And the Turks, for their part, will probably say that, you know, kind of the, Europe the Europeans claim to have a dual track approach to Russia where you cooperate where you can and disagree where you must. The Turks really do that, right? The Turks will tell you, no, no, we actually do that. We have a decent relationship and we agree to disagree and we even compete sometimes. And then we come back and we cut deals on other things and that works well. And the Russians will probably agree with them. Um, I do think the Russians also feel that they're going to call the shots on most of the things that matter most to them, and that makes them feel safer. Paul, do you want to add anything? Or um, yeah, no, I would I would agree with uh, uh, with that um, in general. The only you know thing I would add is is neither of these countries, Turkey nor uh, nor China, come with any transformative agenda to the region either. I mean, they're not asking for for differences in governance. They're not asking for for any of those things that the West asks for. So in, in that that circumstance, you know, that is not is not threatening. Um, but I do think if you look at sort of just the trade and investment flows, I mean, I think, you know, Central Asia is clearly the area where, where you know, you see China's footprint growing. Um, but you also see it growing in, in the Caucasus, too, where China is among the top three trading partners, and, and Turkey is as well, um, and, uh, among all three um, of, of those countries. Um, so, um, and you do see, you know, China's growing clout in, in Ukraine and, and to a lesser extent, um, uh, uh, Belarus on the economic front um, as well. So I think, you know, again, this is a long-term, uh, a long-term shift. Um, and then, you know, I think when you go looking, looking at Central Asia, I mean, uh, the Russians and the Chinese, you know, they have some common interest of trying to keep that area stable, um, both because of the insecurity of, of you know, uh, Western uh, China and the insecurity of Afghanistan, uh, but also, um, you know, the, 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 you know, the tremendous, um, you know, economic uh, investments that China's put in there. I want to ask a question, too, about how you think Russians see Russia's foreign policy currently. And I was just listening to um, Vladimir Milov talk, and he raised a really interesting statistic that said something like 70% of Russians would prefer the Kremlin do less in the foreign policy realm, spend less money, uh, because they want to see more spending at home, given kind of stagnant and difficult economic conditions at home. And so when you see kind of, you know, Russia sending uh, peacekeepers to Azerbaijan, obviously it's not costly. Um, but how do you think Russians view Russian foreign policy at this moment in time? And do you think that there would be support to do, to do more? I mean, I don't know what will happen in Belarus, but would there be appetite for a more kind of activist role in Belarus if things start to go poorly for Lukashenko there? So if, you know, what, what how, how, how do you think that Russians, what would their preference be uh, for, for the Kremlin? There are a lot of Russians with a lot of different opinions. Um, and I, you know, you read different public opinion polls at different times. I haven't seen that particular uh, poll that um, Milov cited. I would say 
first thought on hearing it is, oh, Russians, just like Americans, overestimate how much uh, foreign spending actually costs their country. Uh, because Russia's actually pretty good at keeping costs on these things down. Uh, even on its military adventures, it's pretty good at keeping costs uh, down comparatively. Um, and again, different Russians are different, right? There, are, There is certainly the school of thought of, we're in the game and we want to be in the game and we need to be in the game. And that's important. That's what a great power is. We want to be a great power. And there's the school of thought of, uh, you know, security begins at home and education and healthcare and why so many COVID deaths and, you know, why is my kid not learning? And so, you know, why, do the, why are the roads riddled with potholes and why is the trash not getting collected? Um, and you, you know, you get all of this. It's a very, and it, it varies from location to location, right? So, you know, you've got these protests out in Khabarovsk. You had protests indeed about trash collection. Um, different Russians have different viewpoints, but I think overall, again, Russians like others can be sold on foreign policy adventures if they're presented to them in the right way. I have a hard time seeing Russian military interference in Belarus because I just can't quite plan out that scenario absent somebody else getting involved first and then you're playing into all of Russia's military exercise war games. Um, but I think, I also think that that's not how Russians vote particularly and that's not what you see Russians protest, right? Russians protest on pocketbook issues. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I mean, I think you might see some, you know, small deployments like you're seeing, uh, you know, the peacekeepers in uh, uh, Armenia, uh, Azerbaijan. But going beyond that, I mean, when you look at that, um, I mean, there are peacekeepers there. There's not a whole lot of Russian money going to rebuild or reconstruct and demine and all the things that need to be done to actually build a sustainable peace. Um, I think, you know, Russia probably realized that they sort of bit off more than they can, you know, they can chew um, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and so is taking much less of a of a proactive um, uh, approach at a time when um, when money uh, is is scant, um, and I also think you know they're very wary. Now this is taking it out of the former you know immediate former Soviet space, um, but they're very wary about also um, Russian bodies coming home. Uh, and so you've sort of seen you know this move towards sort of mercenary groups and and private you know uh, corporations elsewhere um, in the world, um, and not a whole lot of Russian coverage uh, of. Uh, of that, uh, particularly when any of these people die, and so I think you know they are, you know, they, they'll they'll certainly have limited um, uh, you know foreign policy moves. Sometimes it's symbolic, sometimes it's more than that. Um, but I don't think you know you'll see a whole lot of of of, uh, of money beyond um, you know what what they're spending already being put to that. Let's just jump in. Um, one thing I don't think the Russians have a huge appetite for financially supporting much of anybody outside of Russia or even inside of Russia. But if you look at what they're doing in the part of Karabakh that they're patrolling, right, it's 1,960 peacekeepers. But there's a whole lot of other Russians who have gone in uh, representing various ministries, and they are getting people who fled to Armenia back. They are helping reconstruct. They are getting the gas turned back on. They're getting the internet functioning. They are going door to door and seeing if people need medical aid and then getting the medical aid to them. It's actually a you know, it's, it's a, they're doing a good job, right? To give credit where credit is due, they are doing a pretty good job for these people. 
so much so that some of them are talking about, oh, well, maybe we can get Russian passports, right? Kind of this whole passportization story. Except in this case, these are people who haven't had Armenian passports, right? They've had passports issued by Nagorno-Karabakh, a entity that nobody recognized. And, you know, kind of this notion of, oh, maybe we could have Russian passports. They probably won't. But you can see where that would be really, really appealing to them. And getting the support and the assistance from Russia, um, it's a small population, but I think they are winning some hearts and minds. What are you all hearing from the allies? Uh, you know, um, Olya, Olya, you're in Brussels and you certainly, COVID notwithstanding, every now and then you'll, you'll you know, talk to an ally, a Brit or a French, French, French person, French diplomat or Italian. Are they, what are they talking about in terms of, of Turkey and in, in terms of NK, you know, what the, you know, the role of Turkey there, there's this NATO ally in there working with Azerbaijan and the Russia. I mean, and, 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 and then generally in terms of Russia, I mean, we hear them talk about Russia quite a bit, but in terms of these specific things, whether it's Belarus, NK, uh, Syria, Libya, uh, are they, but, but again, back to NK, are they, are they, are allies taking notice of that or, or is it, uh, or is it the same old, same old that you're hearing from allies uh, about Russia and Europe and NATO, et cetera, et cetera? Nothing really new. There's not a new perspective that you're hearing from Europeans. So you do hear from certain Europeans um, some concern about Russian-Turkish cooperation in the Caucasus and also the way that the OSCE process did end up frozen out which means that France, specifically as an MSC Men's Group co-chair, is pretty frozen out of any resolution. Question of what is, if anything, is the EU role here, right? Um, other than as a pocketbook to fund reconstruction once people get around to it, but if they're not part of the piece, are they just supposed to pay for it? And are they then supposed to follow Russia's lead, which seems problematical, especially at a time when on Belarus, there's this desire to at least signal with sanctions, even if you don't expect to change anything with them, and a sense that there, you know, that there is a, a um, there is a tension with the Russians. Ukraine isn't resolved, but you've got this, you do have this problem. A lot of questions about what does Karabakh really mean for all of that, um, but not a lot of good answers, uh, which I think is also frustrating to folks here in Brussels and in other European capitals that, um, and, you know, in fairness, they haven't been engaged in Karabakh. Uh, they haven't been engaged with Armenia or Azerbaijan in quite some time. Um, I think there has been this assumption that this conflict was kind of going to go on the way it had been going on uh, forever and nobody had to do anything and it was fine. Uh, so uh, now, it's all changed and they don't know what to do and they don't know what the Turkish role is. I think there's a lot of concern about what the future of Turkey is and whether this signifies something, but it's, it all feels um, unsatisfyingly amorphous. Yeah. We're, I think we're getting close to the end of time, but maybe we'll kind of ask you both to take out crystal balls. And I think Belarus is the one area where there still seems like there's a, you know, some room for maneuver. And again, kind of putting yourself back in the Kremlin's perspective, what do you think their preferred outcome there would be? I mean, do you think that, you know, their, their I, I guess I'll just leave it there. What do you think that their preferred outcome um, there is? What, what are, what's their calculus? What are the factors that are most important for, for them? 
I think they want a Belarus that is aligned and allied with Russia. Uh, there they do see a competition with the West. So if Lukashenko is to be replaced, they would like to see him replaced with somebody who is going to continue to prioritize relations with Moscow over relations with Brussels or with Washington. Um, this said, I think they also, there's a lot of understanding in Moscow that what the current situation is not sustainable. Uh, so now at this point, I'm going into pretty much wild speculation. So if I, were, <laughs> if, yeah, if I were sitting in Moscow, what I would want is for Lukashenko to agree to new elections in which he could politely lose ideally to somebody that I have a good relationship with. Um, and it's actually not a terrible outcome for anyone because honestly, nobody knows who won those elections. Um, you know, call, uh, call it, we just don't, and we never will because too many of the votes have disappeared. So there's just no way of knowing who won these elections. Pretty sure, and I'm pretty sure that if people were to vote now, they would vote against Lukashenko after all of these, these months of beating up on protesters. So, you know, I, and I think the Russians are trying to start building some relationships. They have relationships with some of the opposition uh, figures. They don't have them with all of them. And they want to make sure that they still have that kind of influence. Um, and then they, they really want to make sure that it does not look like it is bowing to the street. And I think that that's the challenge of, can you do that? Can you hold new elections? Can you ha and can you have a shift in power without it looking that way? Yeah, and I, just to add to that, I mean, I think we need to remember that even before the, um, you know, the protests started and, and the fraudulent ele the election in, in um, Belarus, that relations between Lukashenko and Moscow were not very good. Um, uh, they'd been very, very tortured. Um, uh, and so, you know, there's really no love loss uh, between uh, Lukashenko and, um, uh, and the Kremlin. Um, I think, you know, now with what they have, uh, you know, they have a very isolated Lukashenko, you know, his ability to sort of, uh, you know, be courted by the West is gone uh, because of his brutality. So that serves Russia, you know, perfectly fine. Um, but the problem is, 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 you know, you are seeing the population um, uh, shift. Um, and, you know, there's been some polling that, that you know, um, uh, you know, further, you know, puts into question sort of, you know, views, uh, low popular views of, of, uh, of Russia. Um, uh, and so I think, you know, I, I sort of see that scenario uh, very much, you know, playing out that, that if Russia could figure out a way to sort of get rid of um, or, or uh, to have Lukashenko move on, um, you know, Russia, you know, just like they did in, in, in uh, you know, Armenia in 2000, um, 18, you know, has has enough clout that they think they can probably, um, you know, re retain their influence. And and you know, Belarus's efforts to diversify its its you know economy and foreign policy away from Russia really have come quite late. Um, so their ability to sort of really steer clear is 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 quite is quite difficult. Um, but I do think you know moving moving forward, you know, one of the big challenges is, is not just these interstate relations, but also popular views towards Russia in in uh, across the region, because they are um, you know they are shifting. Um, uh, whether that's in, in you know, Central Asia um, or uh, or the Caucasus or, or um, Belarus, you know, not to mention the countries that that Russia has alienated fully. Just to, and then maybe as a kind of a final question, trying to think a little bit about what the U.S. role in in the region should be. I mean, Paul, your point about kind of the change, the turnover, the time since the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
Um, even from Russia's perspective, I think it, these countries resemble more and more foreign countries. I think that's the way Trenin put it in his article, that as time yeah. passes, these countries are increasingly seen as foreign countries. You have populations then within these countries too that um, don't remember the, the ties back to Moscow. And so does that create opportunities for the United States? I mean, both of you have, I think, emphatically noted that really the United States has largely been absent in an NK. Uh, the United States and EU have had a minimal role in the situation in Belarus. Um, is there an opening for the United States? I mean, if you were thinking and planning, you know, for the next four years, an incoming administration, how, what, what would your advice be about how we can navigate these situations? And if there are um, particular openings that a new administration should, should take advantage of? Including the fact that maybe we don't do anything. Maybe that's the you know, the more uh, minimized U.S. foreign policy is that we just, you know, we wish them well. And uh, we're looking at other things. I mean, I guess for me, the question as an American is what does the United States hope to get out of all of this? And what is in the U.S. best interest out of all of this? Um, and here you get into this complicated stew of values and a desire to support democratic movements and a desire to support human rights, but at the same time, a desire not to um, get anybody killed in a nuclear war or really any other kind of war, if, if at all possible, and of getting relations with Russia into a place that is a little less precarious. So how do you manage that? And from my perspective, um, I would say that Karabakh, for instance, is an opportunity to cooperate with Russia, to acknowledge that Russia did a thing that was probably good for everybody, uh, and to say, fantastic, we, nice, nice work, guys, how can we help? Um, we can help. In Belarus, I think it is critical to and follow the, people, the lead of the people of Belarus who continue, the folks on the streets aren't saying that we want to be part of the West. They're saying we want Lukashenko gone. Uh, they're you know, trying to keep this from becoming another fight between Washington and Moscow, which just feeds Moscow's narrative that everything is a fight between Washington and Moscow. I think would be helpful. And then trying to find ways, yes, to make sure that uh, people who are hurt or injured or who are forced to leave Belarus have places to go, have support, that the, you know, the democracy movements are quietly encouraged without creating a situation where it's, you know, pick a side. Um, Moldova, right, encouraging this sort of technocratic anti-reform, but not East versus West. You don't have to pick one, right? We have to, you know, kind of understanding that these countries aren't going to move and Russia isn't going to move either. So they're going to need to find a modus vivendi and nobody's, nobody's going to fight a war for them against Russia. So you need to find a way forward where they can get a good life for their citizens. Um, and that doesn't mean picking a side. Um, uh, I would agree. I would particularly agree on on sort of the Karabakh um, issue. I think we should we should you know while while we might not not like the fact that Russia has has peacekeepers on the ground, uh, Russia solved a a problem that we we've been struggling to, to to resolve. And Russia pretty much was able you know it, it happened militarily as opposed to diplomatically that you know with tremendous loss of life. But but 
you know, the return of territories, um, uh, you know, the, trying to secure the Armenians of Karabakh have been long-standing U.S. policy goals. And, and so I think there are certain ways that we can, we can col collaborate um, and, and should collaborate to, to sort of move that, that forward. Um, uh, and then, you know, I think, you know, part of our problems um, uh, have been, you know, we have very high you know, aspirations, uh, but we very often don't have the follow through. Um, and some of the follow through is because there's a very messy world out there and there are other places that are that are sucking our attention. Uh, and if you look at Central Asia, I mean, anybody who's been there, it takes two days to get there. It's very far from the United States. Our trade um, and people to people contact are, are really quite limited. So I think there's there's things that we can do. Um, you know, first of all, I think, you know, this, this sort of triangulation of, of bad U.S.-Russian relations or bad U.S.-Chinese relations certainly hurts a lot of these countries countries that, that need to sort of maneuver with their next door neighbors. Um, but, you know, there are certain things, you know, uh, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, you know, we can, we can, you know, support, support you know, their, their efforts to be leaders in, in that region might not be on, 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 you know, democracy, but, but we, you know, we can certainly push on, on, you know, social welfare and basic human security. I think, you know, when people get angry and upset in this region, it's not necessarily the democracy, it's sort of the bread and butter issues. And I think, you know, these are the things that, that, that put the Kyrgyz out on the, on the street. I think, you know, in, in very, in many ways, it also put a lot of the Belarusians out on, on, on onto the street. So focusing in on, on some of those bread and butter issues um, uh, and sort of having, you know, the expectations of, of, you know, not just what we'd like to do, but actually being, being realistic and what we, what we can do considering all the challenges we as the United States face globally, but also at, at home now with the pandemic. Well, this has been fantastic. We've covered a lot of ground. I know we kind of glossed over a lot of details of each of the different issues, but um, I, we wanted, that was kind of the goal of this podcast, was to try to do a little bit of a step back look and make sense of the kind of concurrence of all of these events, the, the confluence of all of these things happening at the same time. So appreciate you both joining us um, and hopefully we'll be able to do it again soon.